June 26th, 2015. Do you remember it? Today's ruling from the Supreme Court affirms what millions across this country already know to be true in our hearts. Our love is equal. This morning, the Supreme Court recognized that the Constitution guarantees marriage equality. In doing so, they've reaffirmed that all Americans are entitled to the equal protection of the law. That all people should be treated equally, regardless of who they are or who they love. America changed forever that day. Today made history. This was a decades-long fight, but it is over. It's really clearly over. Or did it? This is No One Knows Anything, the politics podcast from BuzzFeed News. I'm your host, Evan McMorris-Santoro. Today, one of the biggest surprises of 2016. LGBT rights are still on the ballot a year after the Supreme Court made marriage equality the law of the land. The thing about that court ruling was it wasn't seen as the beginning of a new battle. It was seen as the end of a decades-long fight by advocates for the LGBT community. By the time the justices ruled marriage equality into law across the entirety of the country, polls showed a majority of Americans had already endorsed extending rights to those LGBT people among them. The Supreme Court just made that official. So it didn't seem likely that the country would have another election that featured a roiling debate over the rights of LGBT Americans. But it's happening. And this time, gender identity is at the center of it. Uh, I'd like to start off tonight with a personal question, if you guys don't mind. A little show of hands. How many of you go to the bathroom? Donald Trump went on the Today Show. And he came out supporting Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in the position that grown men should be allowed to use the little girl's restroom. Now, I think uh, the attacks against transgender people is part of a bigotry which has got to end. This is about the dignity and the respect that we accord our fellow citizens. It was an expectation of privacy that individuals have, especially our youth have, when they go into a locker room, a shower, or a restroom, they expect only people of their gender to be there in that shower, locker room, or restroom. And it's it's a tradition that that we've had for many years. Let me ask you about that. Let's locker room, let's take How did this happen? What is the fight about so-called bathroom bills really about? Today we're talking with one of the best reporters out there covering the LGBT rights movement on a day-to-day basis. And we're going to talk to two advocates on the front lines of the most famous bathroom bill fight in America. Joining me today on the show is Dominic Holden, part of BuzzFeed News' multiple award-winning LGBT news coverage department. Dom, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. We're doing a bit of radio magic today. I am actually in Newton, Massachusetts, in a studio, uh, like I'm in a tiny padded room with no windows, and Dom is in the beautiful BuzzFeed News headquarters in New York, um, I assume looking out on a beautiful day and the skyline and all that. It's, it's magical. It's like Sesame Street, Mr. Rogers, Neighborhoods, and Skyscrapers all at once. <laughs> all right, Dom, well, let's... Let's start at the beginning of this whole thing. Let's start on that day in June when the court ruled that marriage equality was the law of the land. I remember some celebrations, but like people had already believed in a marriage equality at that point. 
right? Like, I mean, the sort of the t- the tide had turned before the Supreme Court ruled in terms of people being supportive of expanded rights for the LGBT community. Right. And there's been what seems to a lot of people like a rapid transition, where on the one hand, about a year ago, there was this victory for gays and lesbians that seemed to close the book on this national conversation about LGBT rights. And now those same LGBT advocates are the ones who are on the defensive. The thing to keep in mind is that in many states, this is not an issue that was ever on the ballot. This was a question before federal courts. If you look, say, at Tennessee, one of the states that had that case before the Supreme Court, there were four states, at the end of 2015, even after the marriage equality ruling, only 29% of people in Tennessee supported marriage equality. Or you look to a state like Texas, where only 49% supported it. In April 16th of this year, Louisiana, only 41% of people supported marriage equality. So there is a backlash. And people disagree with with what the Supreme Court did. And it's the impetus for a push that's ongoing now. Tell me a bit about what the conservative movement did. I mean, they have that big group of people in these states that you're talking about that were very opposed and remain opposed to the expansion of marriage rights and into other areas of of conversation about this topic. What did they do? What happened in those states that had just lost at the Supreme Court, I think, leaving many people who support marriage equality believing that that battle had been won? What did people who didn't want that battle to be over do? After the marriage ruling, one of the first things to happen was LGBT advocates riding high on this victory announced that their next step after marriage was going to be non-discrimination protections at the federal level, essentially protecting gays, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgender people under the Civil Rights Acts the same way that people of color and people are protected due to their religion or national origin. Like you can't be denied a job because you're transgender. You can't be denied service. I mean, you can't. It it would be those protections are sort of the basic protections that mean you can be kind of who you are and not be treated differently sort of legally. Right. I mean, that's that's what that civil rights protections give somebody. Exactly. But conservatives looked at that proposition and they did not want LGBT rights expanded. They, in many ways, looked at that as an overreach of what law should be doing and also as an infringement on their religious rights. So one of the first things that happened after marriage that really blew up on a national level was that critics of LGBT rights managed to put a ballot measure before voters in Houston last November whether they should repeal the city's non-discrimination ordinance that protected LGBT people. And the campaign relied on one essentially singular message, and that was, don't let this law allow men in women's bathrooms. And they portrayed the law as allowing men or transgender women uh, uh, to essentially become a public safety threat in restrooms and locker rooms. 
Now, it's not that the laws, these LGBT non-discrimination laws, actually allow men and women's bathrooms. What they do is they ban discrimination, among other things, in places of public accommodation on the basis of gender identity. So you couldn't, say, kick someone out of your restaurant because they are transgender, um, or you couldn't deny them access to a restroom that corresponds with their gender identity. And in November, by about a 20-point spread, they managed to repeal the city's non-discrimination ordinance at the ballot. Sort of right after the Supreme Court thing, the long-term opponents of, of, of marriage equality sort of swung back and, and, and actually took something away from the, community, the, from the uh, advocates that, that they'd actually won. They, they took it away from them at a ballot box. And so LGBT advocates nationally then set their sights on Charlotte, North Carolina, where the city council passed an, another LGBT non-discrimination ordinance. But critics came back against it, and they pushed hard, and they raised this idea again that it would allow men in women's bathrooms, that these transgender women were sex predators. And the state legislature, they convened a special session to pass House Bill 2 in North Carolina, which is now this flashpoint, and it did two things. It, one, banned localities from passing these non-discrimination ordinances, and second, it said that statewide, in schools and government-run buildings, that you could not allow people to use restrooms that did not correspond with their birth sex. Or in other words, it meant that transgender people couldn't use restrooms that did correspond with their gender identity. Why are we always talking about bathrooms all the time now. What conservatives have found is if you talk specifically in the in the context of these non-discrimination ordinances about the impact on bathrooms, it is a very effective strategy of not just raising concerns about transgender people in bathrooms, but stopping non-discrimination ordinance from, from passing at the city level, from advancing in state legislatures, and ultimately passing in Congress. And it's it's real politics 101 stuff that we're looking at when it comes to these bathroom fights. You have, uh, you know, if people can think back to that, you know, the famous TV ad of Daisy with a young girl picking um, petals off a of flower as she counts down to a nuclear explosion caused by Barry Goldwater. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live. The ads that I've seen in these bathroom fights are very similar. It's a young girl. She's a young blonde girl usually. She's going into a bathroom and then like some real seedy guy goes in right after her. In the way they're trying to present it, it's not it's not safe for me. It's not safe for my daughter. And so I have to I have to stand up for my children. But this is like a smoke fire situation, right? I mean there isn't actually a lot of documented cases where sexual predators have used the idea of trans people to get into a place where they can do something nefarious. I mean, that, right? I mean, this is like a very uncommon thing. I have not found a single one. And you've got to keep in mind, there are 17 states with these gender identity, non-discrimination protections on the books already in about 225 cities. Now, I'm from Washington state where the law passed in 2006, and there are no cases of someone claiming to be transgender to enter a woman's, woman's restroom and using that as an excuse or a defense 
for some sort of nefarious or predatory activity. And opponents, uh, they'll point to incidents where things have happened in bathrooms. I mean, things do happen to women at times in private spaces, and I think there's no denying it, but arguing that somehow these laws facilitate that, um, at this point does not seem to be borne out by any facts at all. Why do you think it is that this has been so hard for some people on the left to push back against? I mean, I know, I mean, it is, I mean, it really is beautiful political imagery from just a straight up cynical, strategic place. But why are the players so much more effective on the opposition side and the advocacy side so much weaker uh, in this fight than, than it was in the marriage fight? Well, for one thing, marriage didn't happen overnight, right? It took a long time before the idea of a same-sex couple marrying resonated with the general public. I mean, now we're at this point where most Americans do support it, but that was not the case you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, the farther you go back, the you know more people were reluctant to embrace it. But what happened between then and now was one, uh, there was uh, this AIDS crisis that brought gay people to mainstream attention. And there were these campaigns in states where couples were shown loving each other and caring about each other and committing to each other. And so gay people went from an abstract and scary concept to people who were normal, to your uncle and your aunt and your cousin. And so that acceptance grew. So while the critics of transgender and LGBT rights have this bumper sticker ready slogan, no men in women's bathrooms, the response to it is going to be much more complex. But part of it is that these LGBT organizations, I mean, one, they just weren't prepared. They'd been somewhat prepared for this conversation about religious freedom bills, but men and women's bathrooms blew up uh, so quickly and was so effective in Houston. And second, I think that they were afraid of even responding to that argument because it doesn't have substance in fact, and they were afraid of simply embracing the frame that portrayed transgender people as sex predators, even for the purpose of refuting it. Meanwhile, do we know what impact it has on uh, trans people to have this kind of um, barrier to, you know, to their lives, to have this kind of extra sort of hurdle in their lives? So while we don't have documented cases of people using LGBT non-discrimination protections to prey on women and girls in bathrooms, what is very well documented is discrimination and violence against transgender people in our society, particularly transgender women. Transgender women face these greater hurdles, hurdles well documented in housing, in employment, sometimes abuse in the family, and have also reported relatively high rates of violence and harassment in bathrooms. It's unclear what a law like North Carolina will do because no state has passed a law like North Carolina's. But it's hard to imagine that when transgender individuals are being routinely portrayed as sex predators, when their livelihood about where they can use the restroom, a basic bodily function that you need to do to live and to be out in society, is being questioned and under attack, that it does 
exacerbate some of the hostilities that already exist and make a more dangerous and more violent world uh, even riskier. I have heard that there are transgender people in North Carolina who are more afraid about being out in public. And I know that, you know, this debate, as long as it is uh, bubbling up throughout North Carolina, is, you know, it's going to continue to make them feel threatened. Yeah. And I wanted to make sure that we were able to drill into that part of the debate. So we talked to two people who are right on the front lines of this fight in North Carolina. And we talked to them specifically about being transgender in North Carolina right now and what the bathroom fight means for LGBT rights in the state. The first person we talked to is Howie, an RA and a senior studying at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Howie is non-conforming when it comes to gender. Or my specific identity is agender, so it just means like without gender. I don't think gender is something that applies to me. They prefer the pronoun they. Which I get a lot of backlash about from the English majors in my life. But you know what? If you care more about Shakespeare's corpse than my identity, I don't know what to tell you, you know. Um, But I'm one of the only visible trans people on campus. And so what I really want is to just be seen. Uh, I, when I was, uh, before I was an RA, I was, I worked for orientation, um, which is the, the people that are like, wow, welcome to UNCC. You're going to have a great time here. Just like straight up lying to your face. You know what I mean? Um, that are wearing like the, <laughs> the polos and chanting. Sure. Um, I was in there because the money was good, you know? Uh-huh. And <laughs> You're definitely a <laughs> I senior. A point. This is the most senior conversation <laughs> yeah, I've had right? in a very long time. But um, I, like, made it a point to come out to literally every... I must have come out to, like, 4,000 people that summer because I was like, listen, if you're going to come to college, you need to know that trans people exist and that I'm one of them. And then so many people would come up to me at the, you know, like the resource fair we would have later that night and be like, what you said to me was so profoundly important because I'm from Rockingham, North Carolina, and I've never seen a trans person in my life. And what you did was really important. Can I ask you some questions? I guess the idea is that you're in a community of people uh, in a state that is viewed right now as being very wary of uh, people who are like you. Is that your experience on a day-to-day basis in North Carolina? Is it scary? Is um, it safe? <laughs> is it confusing? I think HB2 is like a true reflection of how at least most of North Carolina feels because like I said, many like rural trans people like, can't come out or don't feel safe presenting. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, like just having like the state affirm what you always thought was true about people around you you know like you always have like oh what if everyone hates me and then like the government literally being like yeah we do hate you like we do um or at least like we think you're faking like you're not real do you think you'll stay there after you graduate are you going to stay in north carolina i i do like charlotte a lot i was born and raised in charlotte north carolina and i love my mom so i don't think that i can leave her um so i think i will stay in north carolina But what I will say is that I think it's important for trans people to stand their ground in North Carolina because we need to set an example for people that cannot leave. Like, not supporting North Carolina is also not supporting North Carolinian trans people. 
so it's like that catch 22 Tammy Fitzgerald has been an advocate for a very long time. She's the executive director of North Carolina Values Coalition, which is a group that started about five years ago to help the state of North Carolina pass a 2012 constitutional amendment to the state constitution that banned same-sex marriage. It passed overwhelmingly, but it was defeated when the Supreme Court ruled in 2015. Tammy has a very different take on where the HB2 and the bathroom bills come from than Howie does. What happened was that the activist community on the LGBT side went looking for the next fight. So we had been told that all they wanted was the the ability to get married. And in fact, that was blatantly false because then they began to work on things like creating out of thin air uh, some sort of right for people with gender dysphoria. So gender dysphoria, what is that? Well, according to the American Psychological uh, Society, gender dysphoria is a mental illness produced in people who are born one sex and believe that they are another sex and they're not happy with who they are. So essentially then you reject the idea that uh, the, that the trans community would say, you, you say they have a mental illness. That's essentially your take on it? Well, it doesn't matter what my take on it is, but up until five years ago, it was a, it was a mental illness in the DSM. Uh, and the DSM-5 then uh, declassified uh, gender identity and gender expression as a mental illness, and, and now it's only gender dysphoria. What is your concern that they're trying that 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 could happen? Like if the if the LGBT community got everything that it wanted, um, what do you think would happen? Well, look, what this present battle is about is about privacy and safety, and children should never be forced to undress in the presence of the opposite sex. It violates their safety, their privacy, and it harms their dignity. And um, as parents, as leaders in the community, we should never have to choose between our children's education and their privacy. Sure. And I, I, I wonder what it, it what it must be like to be on your side of this uh, debate. How is your Facebook page look? Are you getting a lot of uh, do you get a lot of flaming on the on, uh, on, on Facebook <laughs> these days and Twitter and all that? On Twitter, I don't have a public Facebook page. It's private. So, um, yes, I mean, I get a lot of pushback from the LGBT community. They even make up websites with my name on it to uh, harass me, and um, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me. Does it not bother you? I mean, They're what does it free feel to like? Do whatever they want to do, they have freedom of sure. speech. Sure, sure. <laughs> but I mean, but I mean, I mean, I guess it just. I guess I'm wondering, does it not bother you at all to be called like a bigot? Well, look, this isn't about me, and it, I don't take it personally. Um, this is about privacy and safety for our children. And so whatever people call me, um, it doesn't bother me. But it is patently false and wrong to call people who hold the ideas that I have about gender and sex uh, to call them bigots because that's just flat wrong. Um, this is about how you were created. This is about nature it's about privacy and if they want to call it bigotry that's fine but they're wrong 
obviously one of the criticisms that you must have heard before is that there are very few instances uh, or complaints about men going into a women's bathroom uh, using uh, a claim of being a trans woman to get in there. Uh, there have been very few complaints about that, right? I mean, this is this this is not a thing that happens very often in terms of uh, what we've seen so far in the world, right? Well, I I, I mean, I don't have any scientific uh, numbers on this, but um, this fight was brought about by people who want to undo the um, kind of the the norm in society. And um, as you point out, there haven't been many complaints about. Uh, where people go to the bathroom, and yet the city of Charlotte passed an ordinance um, recognizing that people could go to the bathroom, the shower, or the locker room of their choice based on how they feel that day. Um, and so a law based on feelings instead of facts is very difficult to enforce. So you saw, I mean, just such a great Victory. I mean, you just won so overwhelmingly in 2012. The vote was not close. And then you saw the Supreme Court overturn that ruling. Do you feel like the battle for HB2 is another one of these moments where you're going to spend a lot of time on something and a lot of effort on something? And in the end, the federal government is just going to overturn it. I mean, is that where you see this ending? Well, I certainly don't think the federal government's going to overturn it because I don't think they have a legal basis to overturn House Bill 2. I just don't believe that the courts are are at that point in this country where they would strike down the right to privacy to that extent. Dom, am I right in thinking that a lot of people thought that marriage equality would just kind of lead to broader LGBT rights and not these narrow restrictions like the bathroom bills? You're absolutely right. A lot of people thought that when the Supreme Court ruled that this debate was essentially over, that the conservative right was going to pick a new conversation. But I think it's important to keep in mind that there is a longer running thread about essentially this culture war that has been going on for a long time, whether it is a woman's right to vote or equality in the workplace. It is a resistance of traditional gender norms and a conservative interest in maintaining those standards. There is this idea of family values and that a strong family leads to a strong society. And that strong family is based on not just having a nuclear group of people, but a father and a father role, a mother being the mother, and a little boy growing up from the time there's an it's a boy announcement to be a boy who grows up and marries a woman. That this is the foundation on which the United States is built. And to see deviation from that, whether it be a girl growing up to marry another girl or a girl growing up to actually be a man, a transgender man, is a threat to this idea of how society works according to these conservative values. So this is something that gets a lot of resonance with people. And on the progressive side, 
there is this idea that gender expectations should not be set in stone. That if a woman does not want to have long hair, if she does not want to play with dolls, that she does not need to. And if a boy wants to grow up to be gay or wants to act or dress flamboyantly, that he can. So even though transgender people are a relatively small percentage of the American population, people ideologically on the left and the right feel a pretty strong stake on saying that either being transgender is okay or not okay. It's interesting, though, know, because it seems like a lot of Republicans, I mean, the, the line at the beginning of the election was a lot of Republicans saying, like, look, the court's ruled. I don't agree with the court, but the court has ruled. It's, I don't want to have this conversation anymore. Re- Republicans seem interested, at least at the national level, in distancing themselves from the conversation. But these laws like HB2 have put it right back in the center. I mean, is that right? Or do you see that that is is something else going on with what their GOP is going through right now? Yeah, I think think it absolutely is right back in the center. Um, But I don't think that people, when this presidential race began, anticipated where it was going to end, right? I mean, people were looking at this post-mortem from Romney's loss and saying the Republican Party needs to reach out to Latino voters and black voters and women and LGBT people, and that their big tent was going to be built um, by not alienating those people with hostile policies or talking points. And, you know, what happened instead was the dead opposite. You saw Ted Cruz, who was campaigning uh, against abortion rights and uh, against uh, LGBT rights uh, rising to the top of the pack. You saw Donald Trump uh, running on this, uh, you know, anti-immigration platform that alienated a lot of Latinos. So uh, the ideas that this is how things were going to play out uh, because they thought that's how Republicans would win aren't actually what fired up primary voters. So now you end up with a very different race and a an energized base that wants to uh, talk about some of these social issues that many Republican Party leaders thought were uh, toxic going into this. Where is uh, Donald Trump on all this? You know, I think it is a matter of which day you ask him. He had one interview just recently where he said something to the effect of uh, transgender people need to be protected, but it is up to the states to decide. And he made another comment that sort of seemed to suggest that there shouldn't be transgender protections. And he did all of that in the course of one interview. So uh, where Donald Trump is, is anyone's guess. Although, you know, unlike Ted Cruz, he did not make this a centerpiece of his campaign, has not used his, uh, you know, his rallies uh, or Twitter to rally up his base by polarizing them against LGBT rights. Um, So it seems like this is an issue he is willing to talk about, but uh, doesn't want it to be the core of his platform and isn't the the central piece of the debate that he wants to have. And Democrats, for the most part, they're opposed to these kinds of laws? Yeah, uh, Hillary Clinton has released an LGBT platform that has expressed her support for using existing civil rights laws the way they ban discrimination on the basis of sex to also ban discrimination on the basis of gender identity. That's been adopted by the Obama administration. She would carry that forward. But what does that mean in every instance? Uh, She's a little bit less clear. There was a questionnaire sent to both uh, Clinton and to Sanders that asked them 
about their positions on issues like bathrooms. Sanders did fill out the questionnaire. It was quite detailed. He uh, affirmed his support for transgender people using restrooms that match their gender identity. Clinton didn't return the questionnaire. So while she supports these uh, transgender rights broadly, uh, pinning her down on the exact specifics has uh, not been as clear. All right. So let's just go over a bit about what we've heard today. The marriage fight, which ended with such a huge national moment in 2015, has created a new era of politics around LGBT rights at the state level. We've talked about what impact that might have for for 2016. And we've talked about the specifics of this bathroom bill idea and what it means to be in the middle of that fight on the ground level in North Carolina. Do you feel like we are seeing an end to these debates at all? This debate that we're having now about religious freedom bills, uh, anti-discrimination bills, bathroom bills, all that stuff across the country. Is this the last major fight over LGBT rights or are there more of these to come down the road, do you think? I think that as long as there is an ideological dispute about what women and girls are supposed to do and how they live, and the same is true for boys and men, that there are going to be types of clashes. And one of those is going to be sexual orientation. Another one's going to be gender identity. But here's one of the things to keep in mind about bathroom bills in particular, is I believe, and I may be wrong, that they have a sort of short half-life on their efficacy. By bringing up the bathroom bill and transgender people who were comparatively underrecognized in U.S. society for a long time and underrepresented in media, almost invisible, uh, a lot of people didn't know who a transgender person was. It was scary in part to hear about a transgender person because uh, they could be a predator or they could be a friend. They just weren't very well represented. But by bringing up these conversations, transgender people are in the media, they're on television, they're on the radio, and it is difficult to stigmatize someone and portray them as a predator, which they aren't when they are familiar to you. So I think eventually the potency of this argument against transgender people uh, really dilutes. And if this fight continues, it's not going to be over bathrooms and transgender people. All right. Dom, got to read this guy. He knows everything about this stuff. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to hear from you more as this election goes on. I think this is one of those um, issues that doesn't necessarily always grab the top headline, but I think is a really defining part of this election across a lot of the country. So thanks for being on the show today. And thanks for talking to us all the way from New York, all the way here in Boston. And uh, we'll be uh, in touch with you in the future and talk more about uh, LGBT rights. Thanks for having me on. Oh, hi, Meg. It's me, Evan. I'm on the trail with Bernie Sanders today, but I just thought I would call and leave you a message. Some very important facts about today's show. No One Knows Anything is produced by Meg Kramer. That's you. Editorial oversight comes from Catherine Miller and Eleanor Kagan. Our music, of course, was composed by Beauty Pill. And you can find us on iTunes and on Twitter. We're at BuzzFeed Paul. Or you can email us at no one knows anything at BuzzFeed.com. Actually, you can both 
find us on iTunes and tweet at us at BuzzFeed Paul and email us at no one does anything at BuzzFeed.com. I'm your host, Evan McMorris Santoro. We'll be back next week with more things we don't know. One thing we don't know is how the California primary is going to turn out and what the end of the Democratic primary process is going to mean for the Democrats going forward. I'm at, I'm in, I'm with Bernie this week. We're going to do a show all about the Democratic primary. Um, we'll have a special guest. It's going to be great. Meg's going to have it all set up. That's you, Meg. I don't know why I'm telling you. I don't know why I'm saying Meg to you. Um, anyway, tune in next week. Check it out. Oh, hi, Meg. I just, it, it's me again. I just wanted to make sure that uh, we mentioned our production help from Julia Furlan and Antonia Therahito. I left them out, I think. And uh, there's no offense to them. They, this is why they production help, because I do things like that. <laughs>